the fourth one of the divine abodes is equanimity and it is considered by the Buddha the crown or the jewel in the crown of the wholesome emotions it's the utmost and most desirable of all our emotions equanimity even mindedness now when people hear that their reaction to that is that ought to be dull if you can't have your ups and downs it should be very boring and some people say well I'd rather have my downs if I can still keep my ups also so um, no interest in equanimity naturally that arises out of the unfamiliarity with what equanimity really is not knowing what it's like one has a preconceived notion because the word is not even something that we use very much I don't think I ever heard it before I became acquainted with the Buddha's teaching so since it's not used very much the word one can immediately assume that the emotion isn't used very much either those things that we do use we do talk about so obviously if we don't use it how do we know what it's like to say what it's like we are running up against the same problem again as describing what a mango tastes like however we can get some pointers and we need to look at equanimity from two sides first of all whether it is desirable how to achieve it and then see that it needs also the meditative support if we look at the meditative support first we may get a better idea what it's all about and then talk about the ordinary everyday uh, application of it the meditative support for equanimity comes from the meditative absorptions now if you remember I explained to you the five factors of the first meditative absorption how they counteract our five hindrances naturally they need to be supported with our daily activity in that same direction also but since they counteract the hindrances in a very 
strong manner we have it much easier in our daily activities now this is the first meditative absorption there are eight of those meditative absorptions and successively more subtle successively further reaching and more encompassing and until we see the equanimity arising there are some steps to be taken between the first one and the next absorptions so I will explain these so that we can see how equanimity is part of this meditative pathway out of those five factors of the first one we obviously need to let go of some factors in order to have the meditation more refined so the first one that goes is the initial application trying to get concentrated trying to sit there and keep it going that goes in order to get the refinement of further depth so when we come from the first one to the second one we are faced with the physical sensation which has arisen which we now realize is still a very gross experience and wanting to refine it we are able to let it go in the background of our attention and let the sukha the joy come into the foreground now all of these five were factors in the first one initial sustained application the um, blissful delightful uh, feelings the joy and the one pointedness so if we want to refine this obviously we need to let go the first one the initial application goes automatically because we're now in it we are actually meditating but the attention on the delightful feelings very often needs a bit of a push to be dropped so that the inner joy has pride of place it's the emotion which is more refined than the physical feeling with that emotion as you may or may not remember we counteract our ill will our dislikes our resistances and we counteract them automatically so that what we were talking about last night to substitute negative emotions with the positive ones of love and compassion becomes easy and 
eventually not even necessary very often because the negative ones don't arise while the substitution is in our daily lives hard work because we still justify our dislikes the underwriting of the meditative pathway which does it automatically for us makes all these difficulties disappear we still have to substitute but it's no longer difficult and we have to substitute much less often because it just doesn't arise when we have this as a base for our life we have a totally different inner being life is different outer life is the same but outer life is not actually very important because how many different things can we do we've probably tried quite a number of them but what happens is always our inner life is responding reacting so this second um, meditative absorption with the where the joy becomes the foremost object of attention also has the quality of giving a great deal of self confidence the self confidence which comes again from the fact that one finds oneself less and less in a position where there is negativity where there is anger upset worry fear the mind just gets such a thorough clean up that these things arise less and less one should not imagine that they don't rise at, arise at all but they arise less strongly and less often and that makes a lot of difference and one can wish and wish and wish that this were so and wonder why it isn't this is the one simple way of doing it the second meditative absorption follows the first one very easily because the joy is already there from the, from the pleasant feeling it's impossible not to have it so it's just a matter of a change of attention just like we can take away the attention from the painful feeling in the knee or wherever it may be and put it back on the breath which means not here but there we change our attention from the very pleasant delightful feeling to the emotion it can be and often needs to be a deliberate change from the understanding that the first one is far more gross than the second one again it is important to realize 
that when any one of these experiences dissipate, dissolve, as they must, because either the mind's no longer concentrated or the time's up, whatever. One has to be attentive to the impermanence of the most pleasant feeling, the impermanence of that what one has imagined or not imagined, but always wanted and wished for, and now it's also gone. The immediate reaction without this is usually, oh, what a pity. Now it's gone. I wonder if I can get it back, which underwrites our craving. So, very detrimental to spiritual growth. While we need those experiences in order to purify, we also need the attention on their impermanence, which holds true for any good meditative state, no matter what it's like. Not to think afterwards, oh, that was good, wish I could always do that, but to see it is impermanent. When we see the impermanence of that which is pleasant and desirable, we get an idea what Dukkha means. Dukkha is not suffering and tragedy. Dukkha is embedded in the nature of all that exists because nothing remains it's always changing and if one doesn't like that and likes to resist that truth one should look at oneself and say aha I don't like the laws of nature I'd like to change them most people dislike the laws of nature to such an extent that they never even look at them. The ostrich policy. It works until something really happens. Like a loved one dies, one has an accident and loses a limb, the stock market crashes, whatever. The children do exactly the opposite of what one wants them to do. All sorts of possibilities. Usually takes a few years and then tragedy. Because one has used this ostrich policy not to become acquainted with the law of nature of change. Here, when in our meditation it finally comes to that point where these pleasant, delightful, blissful experiences arise, their disappearance needs to be seen very clearly. At that time, the mind is very still, but also very impressionable, because it doesn't have all these other thinking and rummaging around in it, so it is open for something new. 
at that time impermanence makes a real impression usually we can just slough over it and say oh yeah sure everything is impermanent well anybody knows that and just keep going and we do like that we've all tried some of us might no longer be able to do it but most people can so what it's all impermanent you know but when the mind is at really at ease open not filled with all this other junk then it can relate to the impermanence of that pleasant experience in a manner which is so much deeper and more profound that it has an impression which can remain which is um, make puts a stamp on the mind so that we see both characteristics together we see the impermanence and the dukkha in it we can't hang on we can't keep it this is really something we'd like to keep now that was really what we came for and again disappearing however the self-confidence is not impaired because of the fact we have learned to renew this experience and the self-confidence comes from the fact that with the renewal and continuation of the experience we have the ability to react in a manner which is usually accepting and caring and concerned having been able to come to the second stage of the meditative absorption one again realizes that this still is somewhat exciting and while in the beginning one likes all that excitement after having practiced it for some time one becomes quite clear in the mind that one doesn't really want any excitement one would like just really peacefulness it is however um, necessary to go through these stages because each one counteracts one of our difficulties so having realized that this is still somewhat exciting we let go of that joyous feeling and contentment takes over now the word contentment is not usually used in this context however it is a logical next step it feels of course very peaceful we are contented because we got what we wanted we wanted some blissful delightful joyous experience in meditation 
we have got sick and tired of being confronted with a wandering mind and aching knees. We wanted some joy and we got it. So the next step is then contentment. This contentment has of course peacefulness embedded in it and the feeling which arises is as if the mind has dropped in to a deeper onto a deeper level. This is of course only um, a feeling which doesn't have any particular uh, basis because where can the mind drop to? But because contentment, peacefulness is a deeper state of absorption, there is actually the feeling as if the mind is dropping. Absorption has become deeper. We are more in it. There's a very nice um, description in the commentaries about these first four stages. These are the first three I've described. I'll give you that description of the first four stages because it takes us easily to the fourth stage. The uh, a commentary says, it can be compared to a person wandering in the desert, being very thirsty and not being able to find any water. Now that's sitting here, thinking, aching, thinking, aching, going to sleep, not wanting to meditate, difficult, who needs it, must be something else to be done, better go and have a bushwalk. Thirsty, no water. Then, this person sees water in the distance. That results in excitement, very pleasurable excitement, because having been very thirsty, seeing water in the distance arouses pleasurable excitement. That's the first step, PT, translated as rapture, as bliss, as delight. It's really pleasurable excitement, particularly when it arises in the beginning. When one gets used to it, it just is. So this person sees water in the distance, is pleasurably excited and draws nearer, obviously knows the direction now where to find the water. <clears throat> so goes nearer and nearer and stands at the edge of this water pond and he's overjoyed that he's actually made it. It's right there at the edge of the pond. That's the second step. Joy. That's still exciting because the joy still has a, an underlying excitement in it. Not quite as excited as the first step but certainly 
there is still this not complete peacefulness because it, that person is still standing at the edge of the pond and then he goes inside the pond and drinks now of course he feels contented he got what he wanted that's no longer excited he's contented with the result of his travel and then he goes gets out of the pond goes to the nearest tree lies down in the shade of the tree and is totally and utterly at ease these are the four stages of the first four meditative absorptions the fourth one is usually called often called equanimity he lies under that shady tree and nothing further needs to be done is totally at ease at peace this is a very deep state of absorption it's the first time when no sound can be heard the first three one can hear sound having entered into the mansion with the key of the breath having unlocked the door getting to the first room the first three are comparatively very simple the fourth one is difficult difficult in respect to the depth of absorption the mind's really got to let go in the first three we have an observer so we have ego support we're observing what's going on when we observe what's going on we're not totally lost yet however in order to get to that fourth one the um, complete um, depth of absorption of the fourth one we have to drown that observer be willing to let go of that last ego support and for the time of the meditation be without that although there still is the remnant of an observer who at the end of the meditation is able to describe it is a vast difference between the first three now what does this do for us this fourth one does a lot first of all we get an inkling how magnificent it can be when the ego hasn't got anything to say we're no longer thinking that that should be a great loss we have finally found out that there's nothing more desirable it is the one thing in the whole world that is worth aiming for what else is there that is so utterly magnificent within <laughs> that the whole vision that one has of oneself and the world changes to one where there's peace can anything 
compare to that? Is there anything at all that we can dream up that is comparable? If there were, I'm sure the Buddha would have known about it and he would have mentioned it. So we have that very first inkling what it's like to be without the ego support. Because at that time the ego is so much um, let go at that time that it feels as if there wasn't any. Obviously, it comes right back when the meditation is over and probably says, gee, wasn't that a nice meditation I had there? But that's all right. The more often one lets go like that, the more we have the automatic reducing of the strengths of the ego. It becomes automatically reduced because of that. We don't even notice it. But it has a profound effect in that direction. Only after some time, maybe a year or two, do we recognize that something very profound has happened. Because we have again and again let go of the wish for the ego support. This is not to be confused with liberation or enlightenment. These are the steps toward it. There's another great benefit. This state of the force absorption, total peacefulness, equanimity, total even-mindedness, nothing left to search for at that time. The ego has been drowned, it doesn't even open its mouth, and the senses, including the thinking, are for that time laid at rest so there is nothing but a complete and utter and deep peace. When one comes out of that one obviously knows that this is the best thing that's ever happened in one's life. And then one can use that experience naturally, in daily living, when things don't go the way they ought to. People at work become unpleasant. People that one lives with don't do what one wants. The world appears to get worse instead of better. The body gets worse instead of better. One is bored, disinterested, rejecting, resisting but one remembers where one has been and realizes that all these reactions and all these worries and fears are totally unnecessary. There is a place within where none of that exists. 
One may believe it if somebody says it, like I do, but if one hasn't experienced it, there's no change. The experience is all that matters, particularly with the absorptions. They change a person to a different one, slowly, gently, without any noticeable effort other than concentration to do it with. Concentration is the tool to do it with. Equanimity, therefore, is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Loving-kindness and compassion are not mentioned as factors of enlightenment. They are factors of purification. And the mind has to become pure in order to become enlightened. But equanimity is a factor of enlightenment. So it is of the utmost importance. Now, obviously, we have two ways of working towards it. One way, as I've just described, the way I have described it through the meditative absorptions has the greatest impact. That really makes a change whether we want to or not. So our direction there is just concentration. We don't have to say to ourselves, I should be more equanimous, or I shouldn't get excited. There's nothing like that. Concentration brings us to that point, to that point of the force, meditative absorption, where we have these two benefits. In our daily lives, we are often confronted with reactions within which are far from even-minded. We go up and down like a yo-yo usually. It's like we can, can compare that like sitting on a swing. Our emotions are very much on this, um, on a swing where we go up in the air and it feels very nice, but just for a moment because that swing comes right down and we're down at the bottom again. And um, if we're not a meditator, have never heard of any of these teachings, we have probably accepted that as the way life is. And if we would become a little more um, clever about it, we might manage to keep that swing on top. Nobody manages. It's built in that it's got to come down. Nobody keeps it on top. But most people try. Most people try through outer conditions. Just a little cleverer and I'm going to get it. I call that our if list. If only. If I could only get rid of this one person 
everything be fine. Or if I could just get that one person, everything be fine. That that one person is also beset with dukkha, is also trying to keep the swing on top and never get wanting it to come down. We forget all about that because we haven't seen it in ourselves yet. It's our if list, if only I could take a long trip, if only I could be home again, if only the weather wasn't so bad, the government so silly, the um, whatever else we think about, our work not so demanding, my bank account a little fuller, whatever it is that we're thinking of, the if list. If we get a little cleverer, we'll make it. We'll keep that swing on top. It's the common endeavor which is doomed from inception. Nobody's ever managed yet. And I don't think any of us are going to invent anything that's going to manage it. The spiritual masters of all ages have invented something. And they were quite happy to tell us about it. But we'll have to change in our approach a bit, in our approach to our priorities. So this swing business where we are sitting on it and going up and down may become a bit... In the beginning it's quite nice. When one is very young it's very nice. I've got to be very young to enjoy it. Because, uh, you know, sitting on that swing going up and down, it's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> but as one gets a little older, it becomes tedious because it's repetitive and we finally find out that we just aren't clever enough to keep it on top so then we'll have to learn something else to have a little more peacefulness within namely to look at when we come down with a little less upset it doesn't work unless we are willing to have the same reaction to when we're on top. It's again the kind of reaction that isn't like a water tap that we can turn off and on just as we please. In other words, becoming elated will follow with being depressed and all stages in between. So we can help ourselves there by continually remembering impermanence on both sides. But who remembers impermanence continually? Very few people. It's a matter of practice. This is why I have already given you quite a number of ways and means of seeing impermanence so that eventually you can't forget it. It becomes so imbued within that it is seen in everything. Now when that happens another burden is lost namely that desire to make things remain those that we like to make them stick around 
to continually have something that is pleasant the desire to solidify solidify experience solidify feeling solidify even exterior places where we live we want to solidify because we can't remember impermanence so we have a burden we're trying to do something which is also doomed from inception there is nothing we can solidify even if we should live in the same house from birth to death our feelings will change from moment to moment so the this desire is a burden and if we can remember impermanence that burden is shed so we have a much lighter approach to our pleasures and our displeasures everybody has displeasures everybody has pleasures and the only way we will ever have harmonious peaceful feeling inside is if we take them in our stride both of them now that we can do in our daily living through the remembrance of impermanence that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy but what it means is that we don't regret the constant change when we enjoy a pleasant feeling we know that it is already on the way out and there's no hanging on no trying to make it solid no regret when it's gone there's just that momentary pleasant feeling that is an insight into impermanence which will help us to have equanimity we can of course practice equanimity when something awful happens whatever it may be try not to get upset about it that's a trial balloon it's uh, fairly difficult and very often results in the suppression of one's true feeling if it doesn't result in that but if we can look at it and say well where there's light there has to be shadow if we can look at it that way and do that over and over again that too will help us but that's on a level of worldliness all the worldliness that we have in us is never satisfactory combated with worldliness the world is at it as it is if we remain on that worldly plane in our inner consciousness we'll never get on top of it we can only combat the world with transcendental understanding 
the reality of impermanence is transcendental understanding it's got to be seen as the factor which permeates everything if we don't want to see it that way we're going to be in constant trouble and we'll have to constantly find a way out of our troubles which is far more troublesome than seeing impermanence seeing impermanence is much easier humanity has chosen a way of living which is absurdly difficult if we read the history books of mankind and have any inkling of the Buddha's teaching in its reality one can only shake one's head and say it is almost unbelievable we don't have to go far back in history we can read it all in this century in my lifetime we don't have to go way back but if we do go way back we can see that the absurdity of the difficulties that we make for ourselves are almost unbelievable and we're still doing it every single day if our day from morning to night is not totally joyous, peaceful and harmonious we're preparing difficulties for ourselves which are totally unnecessary all we really are are like a leaf in the wind we're here today and gone tomorrow what is there to do meanwhile just get enough to eat so we don't die prematurely and have a roof over our head and something to wear what else is there to do it's all gone in the blink of an eyelid if you look at the totality of a universal existence so if we keep on looking at impermanence we have a if we haven't got that ability yet we can see our own excitement and our own anxieties as burdens as um, the difficulties which we are making for ourselves nobody does it except we do ourselves and try to practice being a little more even-minded the Buddha talked about the eight worldly dhammas in this case the word dhamma means phenomena which all of us are subject to including the Buddha they are praise and blame loss and gain happiness and unhappiness and fame and ill fame and naturally everybody only likes the four positive ones and resists and rejects the other four but in reality all of us get all eight and since we are constantly fighting to get only four of them 
and be away from the other four we can never have any peace they are always in the office somebody praises us everything is fine somebody blames us the world is dark and we want to get rid of that person quickly <laughs> we gain something somebody gives us a present or we make a lot of money or we uh, get something wonderful everything is fine and then we lose something we lose um, material things or we lose a person and the whole world collapses and who hasn't experienced both and we are all of a sudden very happy because everything is going well the weather is fine the food's okay the body doesn't ache the mind not worried about anything quite happy and bingo it all changes whether changes or food changes or mind changes the body changes <laughs> and very very unhappy and then somebody speaks very well about us you know very 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 wonderful person you should meet that person excellent person really very nice <laughs> and we feel great and then somebody else comes along and says what that one <laughs> should have seen him or her way back when you know always gets excited about the smallest matter ill fame you know and we hear about both of course you know so everything is dark and upset again the practice of equanimity loses the sting of the negative one and it loses the great elation about the positive one because we also have seen that the positive one is nothing but getting the ego a little more inflated it is already inflated enough it's not necessary to inflate it anymore so if somebody says something nice say thank you and forget it it doesn't matter anymore so the equanim practice of equanimity keeps us on an even keel but it has another quality to it and this is something that people who don't practice equanimity and one can practice it um don't know because and that is the reason why people say well you know it sounds a bit dull i'd rather have my ups and if i have to have the downs with it okay then um because one doesn't get excited about the negativities one doesn't go down anywhere the mind does not go down the emotions don't go down so one can keep on a level of inner joy which is not exciting which is not um overwhelming but it's just harmonious because the mind doesn't go into any downward trend and because it's sitting on this level where it feels quite 
fine, harmonious, it doesn't have to go up anywhere either. It's quite all right where it is. It does need the reminder and the remembrance of impermanence. And if one is able to do the meditative absorptions, one has such a basis and such a fundamental solidity where equanimity is no longer a practice, but it is a natural way of being. One should never think of equanimity as something where all joy is taken out of life. On the contrary, all dread and sting is taken out of life, and therefore the um, inner being can stay even-minded. And with that evenness, there's peacefulness. People want happiness. But happiness is peacefulness. Happiness can never be something that comes and goes to be really true. It needs to be something that we can arouse in ourselves all the time. So it has to have peace as its foundation. Equanimity can be called peacefulness. It has another aspect. If we have, like most people have, been sorry about the fact that the world is not at peace, that there are people shooting each other here and there, luckily not in Australia, but uh, in all other parts of the world, and that we'd prefer the world was at peace, and that we wouldn't like a recurrence of the Second World War, then we have to take responsibility for that. We are the world. It's not them out there. It's each one of us. Even though there's quite a lot of us on this planet, and constantly more of them, yet each one takes part in this peacefulness or peacelessness. So if we want to take responsibility for peace, we've got to have it. We cannot project anything by talking about it. That's what the whole world does. Everybody talks about it. The United Nations have been talking about peace for the last, um, what is it, 45, 50 years, huh? No, 45 years. And what happened? Millions got killed meanwhile. Talking about it is useless. I've got to do it. And the only way we can do it is by having peace within. If everybody who has enough understanding of this were to have total peacefulness within, the world would be far more peaceful. Each one of us contributes to the 
experience of humanity. If our minds are upset, worried and fearful, that's what we're contributing. What else? If we're totally peaceful, that's what we're contributing. So if we'd like to take responsibility for peace in the world, we'll have to take responsibility for peace in our own heart. And that can be done. It's just, uh, it's hard work. It's probably not as difficult as trying to talk about it and thereby produce it. Because that's impossible. This is not impossible. This is possible. But it's still hard work. So we have many ways of gaining equanimity and looking at it and seeing it. And if we see it clearly as our most desirable characteristic, because from it springs all our reactions, from it spring all our ways of being with ourselves and others, then this is what we should aim for. It is based on insight and it will bring insight, but it is heavily supported through the serenity meditation. Maybe that's enough about this subject. If you like to ask some questions, you can do that. so sure that the Buddha said that I just said that but (laughs) I wasn't quoting him verbatim but I'm what I usually do is I use the Buddha's discourses as the uh, um, skeleton of the explanation and then um, explain according to the practice Um, these are not the Buddha's exact words there is no other happiness than peace but um, he was very strong on the fact that joy needs to arise if the path can be trodden that joy has to be part of the meditative practice that joy arises out of meditative practice and equanimity I'm translating as peace. Okay? I think it's uh, in the Dhammapada or something like that. Maybe this is Yes, okay. <laughs> I've got the Dhammapada up in the house. I can't recall. Hmm? And just the other hmm. thing. I hope I'm feel sorry for my friends. Uh, many of them divorced. Uh, hmm. uh, Mm. 
There would be less war in the family, you're saying. Yes. Well, that's very good that you can do that, but I don't think you should assume that everyone who is a Buddhist could do that. There are 500 million Buddhists in the world, and uh, I'm sorry to say I don't know how many of those, pra- how few of those practice. Oh, I'm a practicing Buddhist. Ah, practicing Buddhist. Yes, uh, one would assume that they could handle it like that, if they've been practicing long enough. Yes, it's quite true like that. It does take time to um, recognize what goes on, but if one is willing, one can do it. There's nobody that can't do it. It's a willingness. It's uh, to counteract that uh, ostrich policy, when, which we you know, are all beset with. So you learned about the eight worldly dhammas that we have to be the same on both sides. <laughs> yes, Jeff. to want something in order to get on the path. However, as it concerns the absorptions, 
you have to look at this way. When you sit down to meditate, you want to become concentrated. Okay. You put that want, that determination in your mind. And as you then start, you drop it. If you keep on thinking about it, that's counterproductive. But the determination, yes, it's uh, called an aditana in Pali, and it is used as a um, spur. It's used as a spur. It's certainly said so by the Buddha. It seems that you need to have so much No, no, it shouldn't work like that at all. That's exactly the wrong way of, of looking at it. Okay, you sit down and you say, I want to get concentrated, right? Then as you sit down and actually do it, all you have to do is stay with what is going on with the breath. And if you're interrupted by the thought, if it's very quick, back to the breath. If it isn't, name it, back to the breath. You don't keep saying to yourself while you're sitting there meditating, I want to get the absorption. Because if you do that, you can't get them quite so. An unfortunate way. Um, I don't think so. I don't think that that's a natural way for the mind to keep saying, I want to get the absorption, if the mind knows it's supposed to meditate. To me, sitting and, and making the effort, initially it's, it's the effort to want to go into the absorption. And it's that one that sets up that Without that feeling of wanting to experience it, it doesn't seem like energy to do it just on well the Buddha calls it determination because wanting is called craving mm-hmm. so he wants to uh, show that this is a, um, a valuable want whereas craving is a, is a want which usually produces something uh, which is not very valuable so sure, you have to sit down with that willpower. Call it willpower. It has to be willpower behind it. And then, if that willpower is behind it, it keeps you running. It's like a starter motor. Once the starter motor has started the motor, the thing keeps running. You have to have willpower, certainly. If there's no willpower, one just goes off into the wild bull yonder with the mind it has to be a power but you mustn't think of it uh, now I want I want I want I want because I want is not productive but willpower is productive the strength of that yes the wisdom factor of what of knowing what you want yes yes it's a wholesome action, so that's why the Buddha does not use the word craving for it. I think I was trying to establish the difference between craving and the wholesome action, determination, because mm. they both have 
quite a similar quality initially, I think, when you're sitting down. Mm. Yes, there is a similarity, that's quite true. But willpower and craving are far from each other because craving denotes in our language something that you want to get, which is, um, it sort of has a, that the word craving has a connotation of actually of unwholesomeness in it already. You know? Whereas the word willpower and determination doesn't. Well, sure, that's why it should meditate. <laughs> well, look, I told you, we want to practice to end the wanting. That means the wanting will not stop until Nibbana. But it is the wanting for that which surpasses all wanting. Yes, a, a craving, as I said quite rightly, it uh, has wisdom in it. Quite correct. It has a wisdom to know that one has to get rid of this. But you can only get rid of it when you've got it all, when the work has been done, you know, completely, to the end. Self-determination. Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, self-motivation, self-determination, and in the case of meditation, willpower. Without willpower, it won't work. And sometimes you have to renew that willpower during the meditative process. Because the mind just goes, off it goes. It would only be renewed by experience that you've had, Well, that would be very unfortunate because then most people would never get there. Not, well, yes, um, but there are some that don't. Uh, there are people who meditate uh, quite diligently without having had the um, um, result of the absorption and keep on doing it for the simple reason that they feel there is some benefit even without that. I have a student in Germany, he's a man of about 78, and uh, he's been meditating for the last uh, 25 years and last year he got the first absorption for the first time now he runs around with a perpetual smile on his face (laughs) 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 naturally we're all a minority even meditators are a minority never mind successful meditators Uh, one should think so, but um, I have asked, may I have, actually in the first talk I gave, I gave you the immediate benefits of meditation without co- even getting concentrated. And those immediate benefits are ex- uh, um, experienced by most people. Repeat them. <laughs> Just a minute, I have to repeat the immediate benefits. How would you like to repeat them? Well, I think it's the unsatisfactory. 
Uh, that is one thing, yes. Brings you back to the meditation, you mean? Yes. Well, yes, but then some people don't have such unsatisfactory lives. Their lives seem to be running very well because of past karma. And uh, those are the people that um, are, um, you know, then saying they haven't seen the reality of dukkha. The real dukkha they haven't seen. And they haven't got the superficial kind of dukkha. You know, they're healthy, they're <coughs> well, well-to-do, they have nice friends, they have no problems in their families, um, everything's running smoothly. So, I'll answer these the immediate benefits first, okay? <laughs> well, the first thing is that we have the immediate benefit of counteracting floss and torpor by sitting down and doing it. That's the first. Because sloth and torpor is rampant. It's a procrastination and uh, the, non, the n- not feeling necessary to do anything because everything is running anyway. You know, our lives are running. So it counteracts that. The second thing that we get, the immediate benefit, is that if we label our thoughts which are disrupting, we're getting to know our thought patterns and also we are then able to label in daily life and because we have been substituting with the breath we are able to substitute in daily life with wholesome thoughts now this is an ability which can be, can, cannot be um, underrated it's an enormously important ability and the meditator who has been meditating for some time substituting the breath for the thought is then very skillful at substituting the unwholesome thought with the wholesome thought. It's a very important uh, immediate benefit. Now, the immediate benefit is also the the knowing of one's thinking pattern. One can see clearly, one is constantly thinking about the future or constantly about the past. This is all, all gives one an insight into oneself. These are very helpful um, to know more about oneself then one can start with seeing the impermanence of the breath one doesn't have to be concentrated anybody can see that and if one sits in a meditative mood of the mind and watches this impermanence of the breath surely something's going to dawn on one that this is our life support life support is totally impermanent so what is it about us that we think is so solid so immediately there must come to mind something else other than the ordinary kind of thinking. And the f- next benefit is that when we look at these thoughts that are disturbing our meditation, we can see that at least 95%, if not more, are nonsensical, useless. So we stop believing every thought that we have. Until then, we have believed what we think. It must be so because I am thinking it. This is the usual stance. How can it be otherwise? I am thinking it like that. And that brings arguments and um, enmity because another person doesn't think the same and uh, anger, trying to convince others of one's own thoughts. And when we see that 95% of the stuff that arises is, could be easily classified as nonsense, we no longer believe like that. 
So these are your immediate benefits. That should bring one back to the pillow. Well, unfortunately, the first tape didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Saturday morning worked, but Friday night the pause button was on and I didn't see that. So it didn't work. But Saturday morning worked. Sorry? It will be Yes. Um, Angela, is it? Yes. Well, it's not the trying. You still got to do it. It's not like that. Um, And you know, it's impossible to tell how to do it. You just got to do it. It's a matter of letting go of thinking, and that you should certainly have to learn. While you're thinking, you can't go into an absorption. It's impossible. You've got to learn that. And the other thing is that once you've learned that, then, of course, it runs. But while you're still doing, learning this to let go of thinking, you've got to keep trying. What else can you do? But once you can stop thinking, then there's nothing to do. Once there's no, no thinking, there's nothing to do. It just runs along. It rolls, so to say. But you can't tell anybody how to do it. If one could, the Buddha would have. He didn't. Yes? You have to be explained and um, understand that the are to experience and the images which is happening if you do in meditation to the benefits. Most people um, can get can get into the first absorption without being explained. Uh, They stay for a second and come out again and haven't got a clue what to do with it. So, Well, if I thought so, I wouldn't have talked about them, would I? (laughs) Question is not necessary, is it? (laughs) Yes.
That's Yes, one second of concentration is one second of purification. That's right. I hope it's more than one second. But that's quite true, you're quite right. So any any moment of concentration is a moment of purification. And if you put enough moments together, there's no doubt about it that the absorptions will happen. You see, if it wasn't necessary to talk about them, the Buddha wouldn't have. And he did, in practically every sutta, in the whole of the Middle End saying, 152 suttas. So if it wasn't necessary to mention them, why should he? There are people who get into them, as I said, into the first one people touch upon that very easily, and uh, many people do, haven't got a clue what to do, and that's the end of it. If you want to get into the absorptions, maybe that will keep you on the pillow. Who knows? Maybe it will or maybe it won't. There are so many ideas in the mind. What's important, what's not important. But certainly, those moments of purification that Margaret just mentioned are the moments which, when put together like a string of pearls, will eventually bring one to the absorption state. And as one is in the absorption state, there's nothing more to do. You're there. The mind just has to stay there. And that, again, needs doing. There are very, very few people in the world that can just stay there. That takes constant trying. Constant repetition. Very, very few people who can stay. But many people who can get there. But to stay there, that's not so easy. But at least get there. Yes. Yeah. If I get there and stay there, how will you define two? Well, you ought to know. When you touch upon it, you've got there. When you can't stay there, you can fall out of it again. That's happening to you all the time, you said. Whether there's any benefit. Certainly. While you're in there, you're concentrated. That's purification. Sure. If you do it constantly, yes. If you don't stop doing it, certainly. But you know, I can't give you any written guarantees. You just have to do it. <laughs> Sure. No, the purification stays with you. It does. So, 
if you keep on practicing those milliseconds of purification are yours if you stop practicing that's the end of it yes but you've got to keep on practicing so otherwise you have come back it's like you're stretching a rubber band if you don't keep stretching it goes right back to where it started from yes certainly certainly it builds on top of each other certainly yes Yes. Um, yes. It, it's the, <coughs> the the trying is something that you've got to do. Got to do. But the expectations, the results that you're wanting, that's the problem. That's right. So expectation has built-in disappointment. Belong together. Expectation disappointment belong together. But trying is absolutely essential. Yes, that's quite true. But that character in the book should have tried both. <laughs> <laughs> should have reduced his expectations and expanded his consciousness. <laughs> yes. I don't know that this question is going to work. <laughs> Could you start at some other end? <laughs> Start at the end. Start at the end of the question. That well, sometimes helps. So um, I managed to work my way through the, all the absorptions. So then what? I said that question wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> what I was missing for me here. But it, it all started with your comment about um, your comment where you said um, you're talking about the fifth state, which is what Tony just Fifth state, which one? You mean the absorption? Yes. Fourth one. It's no fifth one. I haven't talked about a fifth one. There are fifth. There is a fifth one. I haven't talked about it. Fourth one: equanimity, peacefulness. Yes. Right. Again. I mean, downtown Sydney is where I'm relating that to. Yeah. That's something else. Yeah, well, those people obviously don't have the force of adoption, do they? No, but I may have to live there. Well, have you got the force of adoption? No, 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 no. Okay, you see, they're mutually exclusive. Whether the question makes it mutually exclusive, if you have the force absorption, you would know what is important. Not living there, but what's important. You would have a different slant on it. 
You see, the, the thing cannot, you can't bring that question together. Look, let's put it this way. I'm offering you the teaching of the Buddha as it can be found in the Pali Canon. If you don't like it, leave it. There's no personal um, compulsion about this. If you don't like it, don't have to do it. Do whatever you like. Pick out what you like. There's no resultant other your own. If you want it, do it. If you don't want it, leave it. If you, ha- if you go into the absorptions and they become part of your life, obviously your life changes. Where you live has no bearing on it. But what you mean with downtown Sydney means the hustle and bustle, doesn't it? Oh, I see. Well, everybody lives outside the what, so do I. I live outside the what. I mean, that's, that's immaterial. But your slant on it changes. So you can't... The question is, a, is not... You can't put them together because it, hasn't, it isn't there. The, the, the ingredient is missing. The ingredient of the force absorption is missing. So the question doesn't have any, any basis in it. You see what I mean? Yes. What you're saying is I have to, I have to do it to, to discuss it. To discuss. Yes. And the, the questions are really concerned with how and what is helpful for it. And even that is limited. Because the only thing that we can say is concentrate. And the teaching, of course, has as its main ingredient the completeness of it. If one wants to pick out bits and pieces here and there, that's entirely up to oneself. It's totally all right. Nobody will have anything to say about that. You have to remember that the Buddha's teachings is a do-it-yourself job. All the things that he said and all the things that I'm presenting to you are guidelines. The finger pointing to the moon, not the moon itself. If you don't want the moon, don't use the guidelines. If you think there are other fingers, use them. There's no no compulsion in any of this. These are the Buddha's teaching as elaborated through the practice that's all nothing else and you can read them verbatim they are to you can have them verbatim the Buddha's teaching they are contained in the Pali Canon in English not in Pali (laughs) yes I didn't say that did I I have no way of knowing who lives in Sydney. <laughs> well, you have to get there to know what to do. And that's also up to each person what they do with that. You know, people, some people do nothing with it. 
they, con- they contain that within themselves they are an addition to world peace because they have become peaceful other people teach other people go and live in the forest with a few people together with a few people some people live in the middle of the city you'd never know that they have attained peace whatever you know it's their own choices also um, there has to do with their, their character um, what what they come to do even the Buddhists don't all teach there are Pacheka Buddhists who are enlightened for themselves and never teach that Buddha that we follow he was a teaching Buddha he is not the only Buddha <laughs>